If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is a great idea. And, you know, we all talked about in a post-pandemic world how we couldn't get wait to get out. And then all of a sudden we got whacked with affordability issues. And, uh, you know, everything's a challenge. But to help residents get around safely during the holidays, uh, some restaurants in uh, Hamilton and Oakville are currently offering to cover your ride to their locations throughout December. Uh, Catch Hospitality Group has your ride covered with an Uber or a Lyft. Take one of those to the restaurants and, you know, just supply proof that uh, what you did and you get up to 15 bucks off your dine-in bill. I think this is a great idea and a great promotion that will get people's attention. Let's bring in Doug Greco, president of Catch Hospitality Group and here now. Doug, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott. How are you doing? Top of the season. I'm doing... I'm doing very well. Back at you. First of all, I didn't list your restaurants, so go through them uh, quick. Well, that's great. So we're Catch Hospitality. We've got a few restaurants here in Oakville, uh, Plank on Brawny Road. We've got the Brawny Boathouse, Ducky's Ice Cream Shop, Corvita Mexican Mezcal. Um, we've got the Fire Hall Restaurant and Coochie Restaurant on Jones Street. And we just brought uh, Plank to uh, Hamilton, into the Hammer. We're on Augusta, 18 Augusta Street. All right. So, uh, well, first of all, let, let's talk about business in a post-pandemic world. You've added another location. You know, it's interesting because you hear places uh, or businesses, whatever it is, uh, you know, who may not survive, but it certainly is uh, is providing opportunities in some situations. What's it been like for you as a, as a, hospitality, a hospitality group with restaurants post-pandemic world? Well, you know, after the pandemic, we've certainly had our challenges, but I, I do see business coming back uh, quite strong. And, you know, I always try and live on the sunny side of the street. So, you know, it was bad when we were in that pandemic and we could have only like a maximum of 10 people in the restaurant. So when I look at a, a night with 150 or 200 people in the restaurant, I'm, I'm really quite happy over the moon, you know, so I, I, I'm, I'm very pleased. I think we're doing well. Uh, Hamilton, uh, for, for me, Anyways, is not really new uh, new ground for me. I lived in Hamilton uh, early '90s uh, for almost ten years while my daughter was growing up, and uh, I lived right at Markland and McNabb, so I know the area on Augusta quite well. Hmm. And uh, when we got approached to uh, to get involved with the uh, laundry rooms there and um, and bring something to Augusta Street, I was all uh, I was all in. We got very excited about it, and uh, and it's proven to be uh, it's proven to be a wonderful wonderful location for us. We're just one Where year did- in now, and uh, I'm quite happy. We uh, we opened the first rooftop patio in Hamilton. Uh, you know, we're on the eighth floor there, and uh, 70 mm-hmm. seats outside. Food truck up on the roof. It was a it was a great summer for us. So we're excited. We're uh, we're so excited that we decided we're going to open another restaurant there on the same corner. Now we're going to be on Houston and Augusta. We're opening up Chow Bella this uh, this spring. Wow, the, it's amazing how the restaurant scene in Hamilton has changed over the last decade or so. Oh my God, you're not kidding. Yeah, it's funny, like being from Oakville and living in Oakville now and having so many of my good friends that are, you know, going out or, or involved in the restaurant business and you ask them where they're going for dinner now. It used to be everyone was going into the city and now it's everyone's going into Hamilton, which is, is very mm. exciting. And I, I think uh, Hamilton's got nothing but a bright future. So let's talk about this promotion. This is a great idea, especially during this time of year, especially when people are watching pennies. Where did this come from? Well, you know, we certainly understand like the December is a tough time for everybody and getting out and, and Christmas parties and such. It's, it's difficult to get out uh, and uh, and shine your dime out, if you will. And so we just thought it would be great to offer our, our clients a uh, an opportunity to come down and uh, save a few bucks on on the ride getting down or the ride home. However, they want to however they want to look at it. You you drive down, take an Uber, take a Lyft. Uh, you know, all you do is show your receipt and we'll take up to $15 off on your, uh, on your, on your drive down, your drive share. And that either gets you home or gets you another cocktail, or maybe you want to have another, another appetizer, something to eat. Uh, it just makes it a little bit more, uh, more palatable, if you will, when you're going out. And, you know, again, at a time when we're looking for value, it's something you never, you, you don't necessarily think about as opposed to, you know, maybe something with the drinks or something in regard to the food menu or what have you. This is sort of an, a different element, which uh, right. I'm sure has attracted a lot of attention for you. I, I, You know what? It's been really positive so far, and we're getting lots of great feedback, and a lot of people are coming out and enjoying it. And certainly, Augusta's got a lot of things to offer. Augusta Street's got a lot of things to offer. And uh, we, we certainly don't mind people coming down, uh, you know, having dinner with us 
and then uh, applying their their discount and then going off and seeing what else uh, Augusta has to offer James Street. is it, It's a wonderful area. So much going on. Uh, and again, as you mentioned, uh, it's not only good for, you know, as a, pro- a promotion thing, but it also highlights the idea of if you're going to go out and you're going to drink, you should maybe take a, a, another alternative. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, or sit back, hey, you know what, I'm going to have another cocktail or another whatever. Yeah, uh, relax. And it, it, yeah, exactly. And really enjoy it. It's a great idea. It's a little bit of stress away from the, from the, from the going out. And, you know, I mean, we have challenges in all the restaurants with parking. Uh, Hamilton is yeah. no exception to that. But Oakville uh, has become very predatory with uh, with their parking lots and who's parking where and street parking. And are you, avail- you know, so I think that adds a layer of stress at this time of year that's just not needed. So this hopefully will take that away. You get to you get to come out to one of our restaurants, have a great experience and uh, and uh, look at it one way. You got in for free or you're, you're getting home for free or you got down there for free. And I, I think it's going to work out quite well. And we're hoping to expand it to. Uh, either a little bit longer into the new year new year or at least every december that we would do it and and uh, keep it running every december with our restaurants Great idea. Doug Greco with us, president of Catch Hospitality Group, including the plank in Hamilton and Oakville, Parvita, uh, Coochie, and Fire Hall as well. Uh, giving up to 15 bucks off your dine-in bill if you take a uh, ride-sharing service. It is uh, a great idea. Hope it works out for you, Doug, and you have a successful season. Thanks for the time. Scott, best over the holidays. You might remember there was um, quite a stir caused when CBC News anchor Adrian Arsenal asked uh, the uh, president of the CBC, uh, Catherine Tate, last week, if executives would still be getting their bonuses despite the cuts that are coming uh, to the CBC. Tate said it was too early to say and then again pressed her on it at the end of the interview. Uh, and this is, of, of course, amid plans, the CBC plans to cut uh, 10% of its workforce. The House of Commons Heritage Committee on Tuesday said it would be inappropriate for the CBC to grant bonuses to executive members. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, thanks, Scott. So, Ian, is this out of touch or normal business? Um, I'm going to uh, respond uh, differently from what your listeners or you may expect. Uh, and so let me go broad for a moment. The idea of bonuses or incentives for executives emerged in the 1980s. Um, And I won't go into full academic mode here, but there was a very distinguished professor at Harvard and uh, his uh, analysis of corporations in the 70s in the States was they'd been doing very badly. Productivity was declining. They were were not maximizing um, uh, value creation to customers, which is the purpose of firms, why firms exist. That's been taught for 300 years. Firms do not exist to make money. They exist to create something of value that consumers want to buy. If they're good at it, the outcome is increased market share and profitability, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he advocated, this very famous professor said, we've got to make CEOs act more like owners, investors, rather than acting as bureaucrats and employees. So he advocated the idea of incentives tied to performance to incentivize CEOs to align the uh, the their own personal interests with the strategic interests of the corporation. Okay, but the key idea, the key takeaway is that you gave these bonuses for successful performance of yeah. the running the organization based on metrics articulated in that. So my criticism of what the CBC is doing is not because they're laying off people. And not because I'm being insensitive, but that's not, you don't get bonuses because you do or do not lay off people. You get bonuses because you are enhancing and growing the company. Okay, now let's turn to say, how is CBC doing? Well, (laughs) the Globe and Mail has published on this and so have lots of others. Their market share, audience share is collapsing. CBC is down to about 4% market share on television. Uh, in 2018, they were at 7%, which is really a terrible number when you consider the mission, the stated mission of the CBC on their website, in their annual report, is to reach out and represent all Canadians. And yet, year by year by year, the number of Canadians watching 
CBC is going down, down, down. In other words, they are not only not enhancing and, and completing their mission to reflect Canada and its regions, they are declining. And yet they are giving bonuses to the executive who are failing as executives. So my criticism is not about whether or not they are or aren't laying off people, but how on earth can these people qualify the executives? qualify for bonuses when their performance record is so abysmal. And it is abysmal. The stats are out there. It's in the third quarter report of CBC where they're showing that their audience, their national primetime viewing audience, this is a quote from the CBC, not me, saying audience dropped to 4.4% of Canadians watching television down sharply from 7.6% in 2018. In some markets, they said, this is the Globe article I'm quoting, in Calgary, the CBC Daily Broadcast is attracting 20,000 people in a city that is, what, approaching 2 million. And so they're they're getting enormous amounts of public money, taxpayer money, a billion and a half dollars of subsidy, and more and more Canadians are saying, you know what, you don't have anything to say to me, you don't interest me. So the executives are failing at their own self-declared mission. That does not, should not qualify for any bonuses whatsoever. Uh, they would say, I'm playing devil's advocate here, Ian, well, all traditional media is falling, uh, or is that no excuse, especially considering you're, you're getting subsidized? Well, you know, <laughs> I do have a very, I was talking about this in class the other day, not CBC. So you've got five companies in the, I like to use my NFL analogy. So you have five companies in the bottom and they're all doing badly. And it looks like they're, the coaches are all going to get fired because that's what happens when you perform badly. It's not an excuse to say to the ownership of the company, look, yeah, we're in last place. We're doing terribly, but there's four other teams that are even worse than me. So don't fire me because I'm a screw up, but I'm just not as bad a screw up as everybody else. That's <laughs> not a defense. That's not a defense to say, yeah, I'm incompetent, but there's other people even more incompetent than me. In other words, you are paid to create value as an executive. I don't care if you're in the public or the private sector. I'm skeptical that we should be paying bonuses in the public sector. When you go into the public sector, and I work twice in the public sector, by the way, you don't get there, go there to get rich. And I tell my own students, if you want to get rich, go to the private sector. I'm not saying you will become rich, but you at least have the opportunity. If you go into government, into public service, whether it's teaching or hospital work as a, as you know as a nurse or you're going into the government of Canada as a public servant you're not going there to get stock options you're not going there to get rich you're going there because you believe in the mission you believe in public policy and you're servicing the public so i have real profound philosophical questions about giving bonuses to public sector executives but even if you set that aside if you just treat it on its own merit, we're giving them bonuses because they're doing a fabulous job. No, they're not. They're doing a terrible job. Uh, kudos to the anchor for standing up to her boss yes. that way. What do you think yes. the message? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we we're all stunned about that, which is, I think, why this uh, has resonated so much. Uh, w- what about the message from the president to her on that show? Um, I... Her term is coming to an end uh, because in Ottawa, it's well known there's a committee or something inside going on in the government to decide who they're going to appoint as the next president. So she knows she's her her tenure is coming to an end because she right. had a contract and uh, and they're not going to renew her contract. Um, I, I thought it was defensive, to be honest. I mean, because she she could have said something. I thought she could have said something very, very different. She could have said, look. It's really tough out there. It's a we're a very large country, second largest geographically in the world, spreading five and a half time zones, multiple uh, you know ethnicities and 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 heritage origins of heritage, uh, um, you know, th- and it's a very very difficult market. And then with all these technological changes going on and streaming, so yeah, we're not doing well, but we're we're going to turn it around or something like that. And she didn't say that. She didn't mm. say that at all. And I'm not saying she should. I want to hear a litany of excuses, but she could have at least explained why they're doing so badly and what are they doing to try to turn it around. Because here's my point, Scott. If you are, if you say, if they're saying, well, there is no hope to turn it around. Well, the very most obvious question is, well, then why are we giving a billion and a half dollars to the CBC if it cannot be turned around? If that is true, I'm not saying it is. 
I'm not advocating the privatization of the CBC. I'm not advocating closing it down. But I'm saying if there truly is no solution to turning it around, I mean, giving one and a half billion dollars for 4% of the population, I just think we're 100% of us pay taxes. But 96% of us are refusing with our the power of the clicker because we choose to watch whatever we want. Hmm. We're, we're saying, no, we don't. It's not meaningful. Well, why are we giving out a billion and a half dollars if no one is watching? You know, it's becoming a, I like this phrase, but I'm going to use it again. It's becoming a Potemkin broadcaster, like the Potemkin houses villages in Russia, <laughs> where they created these fake houses to convince the, the the head of the Communist Party that the region was prospering and booming. They would create fake uh, houses or, or uh, you know, the front, the, the, the frontage of a house, yeah, yeah. the facade of a house. So what they, what we're ending up with is a, 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 a CBC that's a Potemkin CBC. We spent a billion and a half dollars and nobody's watching. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, on the CBC's cuts and plans to give executives bonuses. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. This is a great idea, and considering all of the trails and waterfalls and things that are well that happen when you're lucky enough to live around an escarpment, this just seems like a natural. Uh, the Geo Trails Project is building online and interactive tours uh, tours that highlight local geology and ecology along trails in Ontario in a way that also makes scientific information easily accessible for the general public. Shania Ramaharak Maharaj is with us, part of the team of undergraduate and graduate students, postdoctoral fellows, and faculty members who are working on a Geo Trails Project, one of McMaster's science champions, an, in, an initiative that celebrates the students, alumni, faculty, staff, and friends who are helping to transform the world through science communication and community uh, outreach. Shania is here now. Shania, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi. um, Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing very well. This sounds like a great idea. How long has the GeoTrails thing been working, has been going on in Ontario before you got to where we are now with Coots and such? Um, I would say it was going on. It's been going on for a few years. I've Mm. been working on it just for a year and I'm done now, but I'm really happy to have been a part of it. So you obviously brought a completely local angle to this uh, and doing this in the area of Coots Paradise. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to really make a trail for the McMaster students because that's like the community I'm a part of. And I know that a lot of them don't venture outside of campus that much, so I wanted to make one for them. This is fascinating, Shania, because you would just think that something like this would already exist, considering the history of the area. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great idea. I kind of thought something like it would have existed. I mean, at the beginning of a lot of trails, there's like boards with information about Mm-hmm. animals that you might see in the history, but nothing like this has been created before, really. So you said you're complete now. So uh, talk about the process. Talk about what you did. Yeah, so all of the trails are basically like set up the same way in making them. We find a really cool trail that we think the public would enjoy learning about. Um, and then we hike the trail a few times, notice. Um, anything interesting about the area, geological features, ecological, um, my specialty and Kate's specialty, who was also on the project, um, is hydrology. So the rivers, the waterfalls, um, Coots Hot, like it's surrounded by um, a lake and a river. So mm-hmm. we loved it for that. And yeah, we just do a lot of research about the trail, all, basically all the information on the internet. And then we put together the Geo Trail with a few key stops um, that have like detailed information about what you can see. So these are monitoring or, or recording the trails that over the years have, have already been there. Have, uh, people have just done their own thing on and, and, and have become uh, pathways that people have taken over time. Mm-hmm, yeah, um, there are a lot of trails like in the Niagara and Hamilton region. Yeah. So we go with like a lot of what's already popular and we try to make it more popular. 
So is this basically walking along a trail with your phone or your device in your hand, and as you go, you learn about this? Uh, That's definitely one way to do it. Um, I think if I were going to do it, I would do it that way so that you could actually see what we're talking about while you're reading the information. Um, But it's also made to be accessible for people who may be can't go on the trail um, Mm -hmm. because the Coots Trail is a little bit difficult. There's lots of hills and um, yeah, it's it's a bit of an exercise if you're going to go. But yeah, if if, um, it's not accessible to you or also if it's just like you want to learn about it before you go on the trail, it's Mm -hmm. also great to read before. So this is more about people who perhaps would not take the trail as opposed to people People that would and just want to find out more about it. Yeah, yeah. It's for also like um, people outside of the region who want to learn more about the Mm -hmm. trail because it's like, it's a really important site, actually. Not a lot of people know about how important of an area it is for um, like, it's a migratory bird stop site. A lot of the birds stop there before they fly south for the winter. Um, also like a lot of fish, they breed in Coots Paradise. And then there's also like so many different plant species above 900. So it's like a really, really cool area to learn about. And what's the best way to find this, Shania? The best way to find the trail? Yeah, online. How do we find information? Um, I would say... Go to APGO. That's the host site. Um, APGO Coots Geo Trail. If you just type that in, you'll be able to find it first link. All right. Shania Ramharak Maharaj has been with us, part of the team of undergraduate and graduate students uh, and faculty members who are working on a Geo Trails project in regard, finished now, in regard to the Coots Paradise area. Great idea, Shania. Thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. We remember talking about this, and it seemed like it was uh, a no-brainer in that it was going to go through, but attacks on vacant units uh, that was supposed to happen remains buried, but Council has asked city staff to address uh, questions lingering uh, after last month city politicians shot down the bylaw needed uh, to uh, bring in the new tax. In a surprising tie vote after considerable discussion reports and approvals, many thought it would just whip right through. Uh, not the case. Let's bring in Narinder Nan, Councillor for Ward 3, uh, Ward three, City of Hamilton, and here now. Narinder, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Pleasure, Scott. Hi, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. Are you surprised that this ended up where it was or where it is? I think everybody was. Uh, I don't think anybody anticipated that uh, a 6 split vote was going to take place and circumstances were as such in different councillors' lives, including my own. Uh, I had to step out of that council meeting and didn't anticipate the enabling bylaws. So it's a little bit inside baseball. Usually at the end of a council meeting, we approve bylaws that confirm the work that uh, council has authorized over the course of the year or in that given quarter or that given month. So it basically enables the city to enact whatever it was that council has passed. And so it's very rare that those enabling bylaws get lifted and debated further because by and large, we've already done that work. And on the vacant units tax, we've been doing that work for four years. And earlier this year, ratified the housing policy tax at a 10 to 5 split with uh, one, one member of council voting in a conflict of interest. So, yeah, it just was the circumstances. Um, however, uh, I, the policy still exists. So what that means is it's still a policy of the municipality to go forward with the vacant unit tax. Um, and so we're on all footing in order to do so. So this basically happened due to a technicality, just not enough votes there when it was needed? Yeah, pretty much. 
because if everybody who was supposed to be at council at that time, uh, had we known that this was going to be lifted, uh, I had to step out for a medical emergency situation for my mom, mm-hmm. uh, take care of something while she was in hospital. Uh, I know that Councillor Crutch had a meeting conflict. He had to run off to a community meeting that was previously scheduled, and Councillor Ted McMeekin had to step away from council meeting at that time, too. And at this point, I think it was the eighth hour <laughs> of a council meeting. So, uh, and all three of us support the vacant unit tax. So, when and uh, if the enabling bylaws come back for 2024, we'll be in a different position for sure. So, was this just a bad coincidence or was this kind of fandangled? Was it planned? Uh, I don't think there was any ill intent uh, or, you know, premeditated motive on the part right. of the council member. I think it was a certain set of circumstances that all, you know, came together at, at a particular um, moment on council. Uh, the only change is that one council member felt that they previously supported the vacant unit tax that for them, they need a little bit more information clarified before they're able to support the final version coming forward in 2024. So uh, what? on that note, what more needs to be learned? What needs to be flushed out here? Yeah, I think that many residents are still unclear about the ease in which to fill out the declaration form. So in order for municipalities to enact a, a, a new tax, we have to get the authority of the province, which we've already done, Uh, But it necessarily requires us to have every property owner fill out and declare the status of their home. So whether there is uh, their home is empty, whether there is a secondary dwelling unit uh, that is permitted and on the books and it is empty or they own uh, a, a building with multiple units that they're keeping empty because they're keeping that building vacant, hoping to make more money in selling the home rather than renting it out. So all of those scenarios, we need the actual property owner to verify it. And then based on that declaration, implement the 1% tax on the property value. And so I think a lot of residents were just concerned about like, is that going to be, is that going to be a form of negative billing? You know, what if I don't fill it out Mm. in time? And staff have done a really good job of looking at the examples in Ottawa, which is the last municipality to enact it. Um, And this year was their first year of um, reviewing it and putting it in place. And they ended up collecting $10 million, which is now a bank of money that they're able to allocate to affordable housing. Um, And in terms of, you know, residents being concerned, there's every counselor's office is a resource to help support our residents to fill out these forms properly. Uh, Mm. So in Ward 3, for example, I'll be doing some tutelage (laughs) on social media. I'll put up some videos, how-to videos, step-by-step guides uh, to make sure everybody's successful in filling out this paperwork. Because I can imagine that stresses people uh, out filling out tax papers. I was going to ask you what you expect to get from this, but obviously it looks like a win-win situation. Uh, How do we avoid this? What do we learn from this situation? Yeah, I think just really good, clear communication to residents and stakeholders. And I think there is a lesson here for council members, too, that if you have questions about policies, uh, always turn to staff who are responsible for it and ask those questions rather than making assumptions and coming up with a finite uh, position on work that our city needs to roll out. We need to make sure that our staff know that feedback so they can course correct to make sure our residents are successful. Um, and then also make sure that all stakeholders are aware. So good communication, good follow-up, and then us as ward counselors, making sure that we're there to help hold the residents' hands as they complete the paperwork. And then mm-hmm. final final thing would be to make sure that you don't miss an enabling bylaw vote. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that was kind of the first one I was thinking of. But anyway, uh, when do you think this is going to, I know it happens, when do you think this thing is going to fl- uh, finally fly? Uh, I, I anticipate that in 2024, we'll be able to implement it. That's a long year, 12 months. Uh, anywhere in there, January, February, oh, June? It would be my goal to have it done within the first quarter of the year so that all right. the, the work that's been done doesn't go to waste. All that paperwork is ready to mm-hmm. be filed and sent out to our residents. And it would be important not to, not to waste the $300,000 that we've already invested in this work. Uh, and Rinder Dan with us, Councillor for Ward 3, City of Hamilton on the vacant unit tax. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Take care.
Todd Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. COP28 has uh, finished up and nations agree to transition away from fossil fuels in this historic deal. And to talk more about all of this and what it all means moving forward, Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy and former Liberal MP and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hello, Scott. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on this situation? Many people are calling this uh, uh, precedent setting and and historic and such. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, because you know, when when I first heard that, I, I thought we had already agreed to do that. But because because the way you know you listen to things in this country, um, you know, it's a little bizarre. And another, I, I just want to read you this quote out of this uh, Financial Post article, and it said uh, many uh, are saying that this isn't enough. It isn't enough. Instead, it calls for, quote, transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equ- equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade. To me, that sounds like a common sense uh, way to approach this, but that doesn't seem to be what we're doing. No, what they're doing is they're asking for something that they know they can't have. <laughs> Nothing is there to replace uh, coal, uh, natural gas. Or oil, and uh, you know, I mean, the mere farce that ninety-seven thousand of them traveled there by jet. Uh, we're not talking people who swam there or took a rowboat, uh, but we're talking people who've used fossil fuels to attend these annual gab fests and confabs that uh, really amount to nothing. They've been doing this nonsense for twenty-seven years, and uh, you know, if you're going to get excited about the world coming to an end or, you know, uh, you know, a degree or two of difference in temperature and you're going to get all, you know, catastrophic about it, that's fine. But the reality is that the world is going to continue evolving. Uh, you know, technology will continue to get better. And uh, all the other pollutants in the world that we really need to focus on, uh, the, you know, the SO, you know, SOX, NOX, uh, NOC, uh, and, and NO2, uh, the uh, volatile organic compounds, VOCs, uh, the real stuff that we should be concerned about, in which countries like China and uh, India and uh, a, a raft of nations will continue to use, should be the you know the continuation of our target. Instead, we have this you know this complete obsession with only one element, and that's CO2, which happens to be not a pollutant. But in fact, something that is uh, that gives life. And of course, if you look at the numbers, it just doesn't make sense. For a country like Canada, 1.5% of that CO2 emitting uh, on a world scale, which is uh, 3% of our atmosphere, of the carbon in the atmosphere is in fact uh, man-made. It has little to do. It'd be a little bit like going down to the Burlington Skyway, uh, putting a grain of sand or salt there and saying we have to rip the whole thing down because there's one grain of sand on that. It's mathematically ridiculous. But hey, look, gives people justification. And uh, the new religion of climate seems to have gripped some. But for many people, it's uh, show me the uh, show me the evidence. And the evidence is clearly not there. Uh, We've done a bang up job here in this country to clean things up. We're going to continue doing that. But we don't need people imposing ridiculous mandates in another part of the world that Canadians are now starting to have to pay for. And they don't like it. Uh, Not one bit. As we've as we've talked about many times, Canadians very concerned about the climate, very concerned about getting towards renewable energy. Where the big debate is, is how we get there. And of course, if you question that, you're a denier of some sort. But this really, uh, and again, good for them for, for coming up for this uh, uh, statement and such, because, you know, you got to come out of these with a statement. But it really seems like it's just a climate change trade show where everybody's kind of flaunting their wares and there's no real solution or agreeance or people rowing in the same direction to actually find a solution. Well, I think one has to ask the question, what is the solution to the problem? What is the, you know, what is the problem you're trying to, to fix? And, uh, you know, short of those that are out there who are paid to come to a certain conclusion, the reality is very different. I mentioned this to you a couple of times before, Scott. The granddaddy and all this was a guy named Maurice Strong. I know him very well. In 1978-79, I helped run his campaign in Scarborough Centre when he ran as a Liberal. He didn't quite finish, didn't want to run at the end. Uh, But they had been pushing this for a very long time. 
And with it has been this sort of nihilism that the world is coming to an end, that uh, mankind and humanity is killing itself, that we'll do nothing for generations to come. And it's been, you know, really uh, vogue and trendy to come out and say that. But the reality is that the world is not coming to an end. We are managing to do extraordinarily well. It's warm. People don't die of heat. They die of cold. And that's something we should be looking at. It's interesting because I, I was talking to an academic yesterday about this. And again, as we've talked about before, why are we not all concentrating on getting the world off the biggest pollutant, which is coal, instead of, you know, all or nothing to which, you know, again, if you can't get the world off coal, how do you get them off of everything? And, you know, he said, we're running out of time. And, you know, I remember uh, Elizabeth May saying that to me 20 years ago when I asked her the same question 20 years later and 20 years before. So, um, again, there really seems to be this mantra that we will not survive this, which to me, you know, if you've again, if you grew up in any decade, this has always been there. You know, we were going to die from the ozone. We were going to die from the rainforest. We're going to and, you know, we fixed it all. We turned it around. So why is this any different? And well, when alarmism and catastrophism becomes bedwetting, you know you've got a problem on a social scale. But look, the 11th century was a lot warmer than it is now. Uh, this has been proven time and time again, although they try to suppress the information. Uh, mankind uh, did very well. Civilization did extraordinarily well in the 11th century. And I don't think it's because of the 1066 Battle of Hastings, where France uh, eventually conquered England, that was uh, responsible for those emissions, which is responsible for driving those temperatures way up. The point, I think, in all this is that we need to take calm down, recognize that there are things that we want to achieve. We might be able to achieve those in the short term, but longer term, you can't punish society. And, uh, you know, yeah. go back to, to Scott, when you and I were younger, feed the world. You don't hear that anymore. The world is not hungry, is no longer hungry. Yeah. Uh, we've achieved a lot and we should be celebrating our uh, the CO2 and our ability to get things together. Uh, again, you go back to, you know, back in the 70s, somebody was saying to me the other day that, you know, the whole thing was reduction and conservation and technology and improving as opposed to taxing people into changing their behavior without an alternative. And that's really the way we're going now. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, look before, uh, just don't look before you leave. And we're doing that on, on such a wide score. I think for many people, it's a question of, can we afford one carbon tax? I think all of us here in Hamilton and Toronto and across the country have said, no, it doesn't pay as much. Can we afford a second carbon tax, which many of us will start to feel a year from now in 2025? Uh, can you afford now a third carbon tax, an emissions cap, which basically says only Canadian energy gets capped and only Canadian emissions coming from oil and gas. Forget the fact that people like Stephen Gibo, a Marxist climate activist, who has, uh, is sits in the province of Quebec on hydro dams, which they had to flood millions of acres, which in which mm-hmm. there's vegetation under there. What is that vegetation doing right now? It's rotting, emitting methane, a lot more than all the cows in North America. So if we're going to go down this road of saying we can get rid of the number one uh, you know, generator and, and success in our country, that is the oil and gas sector, if we think we can get rid of that, good bloody luck. But watch for your hospital shut down. Watch for your pension system shut down. And guess what? Other countries like Russia, Venezuela, Iran will be only too happy to provide you the oil and gas you're going to need. And for your renewables, all the cool trendy trinkets you have, your solar panels, your windmills and your EVs, get China to continue doing what it's doing. We are losing a sense of ourselves. And in the process, we're twisting ourselves into uh, a future, which is most uncertain. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, uh, talking about COP28. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Is it live or is it Memorex? Remember those days? Is it live or is it AI? Or is it even that person at all? And I guess we can't be surprised about any of this. A new tech startup, Channel One AI, is headed towards a full launch of its services in 2024. And basically, this is, um, it means the anchors that you see and hear on screen are all artificial. What does this do about checks and balances in journalism and media industry? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's here now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
I am, although I got to start with a question. What checks and balances, Scott? Because I see yeah. something like this and I can't, and I sort of wonder, where are the protections to make sure that what we see is, in fact, legit? Uh, it's honestly, this this story chilled me to the bone. It's scary, scary stuff. And there doesn't seem to be any moral or ethical compass about how we go from here. They're just throwing it out there and they're you know seeing what sticks. That's frightening stuff. We can't. Are you surprised, Carmi? Because it now, as you say this, well, that seems uh, obvious. Why not do that? But then, what about actors or everybody else, for that matter? Yeah, I mean, we just came. You know, we just came off the, the SAG after strike, the Hollywood yeah. actor strike, where the the core issue there was the use of AI to replicate a performer's work uh, and allow the studios to repeat, you know, use it, uh, use their intellectual property without having to pay them again. That was the original proposal, and yeah. they went on strike for it, and eventually got some kind of protections in place so that that you know they will be protected against abuses of this technology and now you have uh this is not these are not movies and tv shows this is journalism these are newsrooms uh and and there are no such protections they're just going to use avatars uh you know cgi or ai created uh individuals as well as uh scanned versions of actual anchors who and mm. and run it through an ai and create footage that way so are the anchors who were originally scanned, are they being paid the same amount? Do they still have the same yeah. opportunity to advance their career? What does this mean for uh, journalistic integrity when they use uh, AI to take a clip and change the language? That's kind of frightening. That guy was just talking French. Now he's talking English uh, yeah. and he can speak up to 200 different languages. That's not journal, you know, journalistically, that's that crosses a massive moral and ethical line because that's not how it was originally recorded. That's not the guy. So there are so many alarm bells going off here. And yet there's no accountability. This company can do channel1.ai. They can essentially do whatever they want and they will. And they'll launch it and let the chips fall where they may. And that, frankly, it disturbs me and it frankly should disturb all of us. Uh, obviously, the number one reason people do this or companies would do this is because uh, less human contact, le obviously less humans means it's a lot cheaper. But where the gray area is, is who controls what and who decides what these fake people say. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, if you look at a conventional newsroom today, and again, maybe I'm speaking from sort of inside the beltway because I'm a, a journalist as well. And, and, and I think we'd be naive to think that newsrooms today aren't looking at AI and going, how do we use it to streamline the process of collecting news? So as humans sitting at a news desk, how do we take AI tools and use them to work better, faster, more precisely? And I think that's fair game. We, journalism has always been about leveraging technology to do the job better. Uh, but I think at some point you cross a line. In other words, when you're replacing humans entirely, pulling them up out of the loop, uh, you know, if, if, you know, if I'm a viewer and I'm watching one of these newscasts, that isn't a human who's reading the news. That's one. So I can't, I can't follow them on social media. I can't have a conversation with them. They can't reach out to me as a source. That journalistic relationship is now gone. And then when they point their, their, their AI camera at someone and they shoot them, because that's what journalism is, ask people their opinion, get them on camera or get them on air. And now you're you're doctoring it with AI or so the question is, what am I seeing as as a news package? Is it real or is it AI generated? So the whole ethics of what we are seeing, this isn't just CGI in a Marvel movie. This is the news. Uh, and if you can't trust uh, that what you're seeing is, in fact, legit, then then can you trust the news? We already have trust issues in the news. This is going to make it even worse. And they say they're going to label when AI is used. Uh, but let's be clear, uh, that's they're still going to be slip ups. And I don't really seem to think they're going to be prioritizing that all that much. I think this is just this is going to launch and we are just going to see one mess after another. And it's going to take us places we don't necessarily want to go. Uh, there's so many different angles to this, whether it's content, but even if you can adjust your you, you can adjust your staff with the click of a mouse. I want yeah. male, female, yeah, that, this, that. That's the that's the scary thing. Again, you know, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. And so, if I can, you know, it, again, it's one thing if I'm watching an animated movie or a Hollywood movie, and they're using AI to streamline the production process. When I pay for my ticket at the movie theater and I go into the darkened theater. I know full well that what I'm seeing isn't based on reality. That's why I go to the movies, to get away from reality. But when I'm consuming the news, 
I need reality. And if you're going to start blurring the lines between real and not real, that's when we have a problem. When we see content, for example, in our social feeds, and we take it as real only only to find out afterward that, oh, it was AI-generated, goodness. Well, by then it's too late, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the riot has already started. People's opinions have already been formed. Uh, and the correction will never be heard as loudly as the original lie. So this makes it a lot easier to spread misinformation and disinformation. And it's only a matter of time before malevolent actors, folks who want to do harm to us, get a hold of this and use it to their advantage. I, I, there, there, There's very little upside here and there's a whole lot of downside. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, uh, AI, coming to your nightly newscast. Carmi, as always, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well. So great finger, Scott. Thank you. All right, we're hearing this again. Health systems across the country starting to feel the pinch again, uh, whether this is just the fall illnesses that arrive, the flus, the respiratory illnesses, uh, leaving more and more people asking for help as they show up at ERs, usually because they don't have a family doctor. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Becomes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute and here now. Sean, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. Sean, we remember, I remember talking to you, whether it was during the pandemic or at the end of the pandemic, we, you know, we saw our healthcare system for what it is, uh, warts and all, and, you know, we were all convinced we were going to do something uh, to try to fix it and make it better. All the provinces uniting and such and, and talking with the federal government. Have we made any gains? Uh, it seems we're talking about the same things we were talking about a year or two ago. Well, it's always good to be hopeful. I don't think despair is a virtue. So we could focus on the fact that we do have more acute care beds in in the system. However, I I think the bad news probably outweighs the good at this point. We're up to 2.2 million uh, patients in Ontario without a family doctor. Um, we, We haven't uh, made a huge change in the number of beds per 1,000 population. So in Canada, we sit around 2.5 acute care beds per 1,000, whereas in the European countries, they're up around 4.5. And just to let people know, we were around seven beds per 1,000 population in the in you know in 1976, 1980. So we've got a long way to go. We are making small moves, but I don't think anyone really has the appetite for for really real fundamental change to deliver people the care that they need and expect from their health insurance plans. And we talked about this before. Uh, Are we going to get more Band-Aids or do we need to change the template? Are we still debating that? Um, Well, we debated it a lot more during COVID. It seems to have cooled off a bit. It, it almost feels like we're in a bit of a lull where people are saying, well, let, let's let try some cautious change around the edges. I don't think anyone is is ready to jump in and say, wait a second, are we expecting too much out of government? We're asking government to be the cook, the chef, the bottle washer, to do everything. And I mean, governments have always done their best when they partner with citizens and private industry. And and so that that's where I'm coming from. I'd love to see a lot more of that, but I haven't seen much appetite for that yet. Uh, does the public have appetite? As soon as you say that word privatization, they, everybody, well, lots of people uh, don't see what we're seeing and, and, and start to cringe. What's the message there? Yeah. So the problem with the word privatization is it's become, it's a, it's like a, it's a whistle, right? It means everybody should word. jump up and mm-hmm. yeah, pick a side, right? I hate it. I love it. Um, I, I think we need to to reframe the discussion and start with what do our patients need? Do they want to be able to choose who their family doctor is? Do they want to be able to choose the kind of services that they can a- access? Do they want to have some input into how many hips are getting replaced in their local community and who's managing that? So there's a lot more that goes into the discussion than simply price. And so when you say private, public, people are usually saying credit card versus OHIP card. Right. I think we can push that discussion to the side and talk about types of service, volume of service, who gets to manage that, who owns the facilities in which those services are provided, and who gets to talk about what sort of customers should and should not be seen in a particular facility. So it's a broader discussion, but there's very little appetite to have that discussion yet. 
It seems that uh, everybody has a certain opinion until they have to get in line and use it, and then perhaps their, uh, you know, their their opinion changes. Um, we're hearing so much, whether it's anecdotally or, or in the news and such, about doctors leaving practices and, and and going to other options and such. What do we do to increase the amount of doctors interested in just being a basic family doctor again? Yeah, so you're talking about the quiet retreat or the silent retirement where you just mm-hmm. slowly decrease your office hours, you start doing a little bit of other work and you know, you don't want to make a big splash about it cuz you don't want to draw attention to the fact that you're leaving a full-time practice. Very hard to measure, very hard to know how much of it's happening, but I think um we've known about this trend for at least 10 to 15 years just looking at the number of patients a single family doctor can can handle. Certainly 15 years ago, it was not uncommon to see docs with 2,000, 2,500 patients and even larger, the roster size. Now we usually say, you know, you're full time if you're around 1,100 patients. Lots of things go into that, a, a greater administrative burden, sicker, older patients. But also the incentives just aren't aligned to be a workhorse anymore, right? If you're a workhorse, maybe you're kind of stupid because you're just going to draw attention to yourself. You're going to get higher taxes. People are going to complain about you, feel jealous. It's just, it's not worth it. And so until we can change the calculus of, you know, should we have doctors who can, we, we can just let them run like a wild horse and see as many patients as they possibly can rush into risk, go to save lives. Is that what we want? Or do we want to micromanage them and tell them, no, you can't do this, you can't do this, and your chart has to look that way? If we lean on that side of things, we aren't going to have ever have enough doctors to provide the care that patients need. Uh, what about population increases? Obviously, we've seen a lot of that in the last little while. A million new Canadians this year. Everybody knows the importance of immigration, especially when it comes to employment and such. That's what this country is. Um, but just as the stress it's put on housing, uh, now we have a new problem over and above the people uh, that we're looking for family doctors. There's more arriving on the shores. Do we need to tap the brakes there? How do we bring that into the discussion or do we? Yeah, so population's always going to grow, and I think that's the way we've always run Canada. You know, mm-hmm. bring lots of people in, and and hopefully the GDP goes up. So I think most of us would would support that. The challenge with healthcare, there's two aspects. There's the the hard capital costs, so buildings, beds, you know, physical things, uh, but then there's also the ongoing HR costs. And when you start talking about that, like how much can a nurse do? How much can a doctor do? And it's usually in that area that we get into rules, regulations, policies, expectations that constrain the amount of work a single nurse can do. So Hmm. if a nurse is spending all his or her time on a chart versus actually seeing people, we're going to need a heck of a lot more nurses. Same thing for doctors. If they're spending two hours charting for every hour that they see in patient care, we're going to need a heck of a lot more doctors. So we don't have an absolute lack of physicians for the most part, aside from subspecialists like pediatric neurologists, for example. But overall, we have a relative lack of physicians due to an absolute lack of freedom and the ability to Mm. innovate and find creative ways to see more patients. Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute, talking about the health of our healthcare system. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, sir. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. Man, there seems there's so many conflicts going on in the world, it's hard to keep up. Uh, and, of course, remember the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and, of course, uh, what has happened since all of that and the, just the destruction and uh, the fleeing of civilians. Uh, many of the Ukrainians who have fled to Canada are now wishing to permanently immigrate here. To talk more about all of this, Phil Triadaphilopoulos is with us, Associate uh, Chair, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto Scarborough, Associate Professor, School of Public Policy and Governance, and here now. Phil, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. 
Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I'm well. How are you? Good, thank you. Has this changed a bit? Because I remember when this conflict first started and, and we were starting to see a lot of Ukrainians arrive here and, and of course, um, um, you know, to get out of harm's way and such. And at the very beginning, it seemed uh, people that I talked to uh, through agencies and such, uh, they were really looking forward to going back. However, a lot has happened since then. Has the tone changed a bit? Well, it's pretty typical when people arrive uh, in a place, even if they're not necessarily seeing a war zone, oftentimes uh, they think they're going to come for a little while and then go back home. But once you arrive, you get a job, you, um, you know, find a place to live. If you're lucky, uh, your kids go to school. If you have children and you start to get into the rhythm of your new life, and then the idea of uh, leaving again is a little more difficult than it was prior to arriving. So I think that's pretty uh, common immigration story or migration story. Both my parents came to Canada with the intention of staying for a couple of years, having an adventure, making some money, mm. going back to Greece, but that's mm-hmm. not what happened. Uh, and obviously now going back to uh, their homeland, it's a lot different than when they left. Yeah, we could try to put ourselves in their shoes. It's hard, if not impossible, to do, but it's still an active uh, war zone, right? It's, it's, it's a conflict, unfortunately, persists and in some ways is uh, not getting better. So that adds another dimension, right? The idea of um, leaving to go somewhere where it's unsafe is probably not tenable for any of us. None of us would want to do that. Uh, an idea, how many are here? How many came and fled at that point? Yeah, so there's two streams of people. I think the people that we're talking about came under something called the Canada-Ukraine Authorization for Emergency Travel Plan. And uh, 726,000 people were authorized to come on an emergency basis where a lot of the visa requirements were waived. So this was really meant to bring people to Canada as quickly as possible to get them out of danger. Mm-hmm. Of those 726,000, about 210,000 are in Canada. And uh, there was a, a poll done recently, a representative sample of those 210,000 people here, and a significant majority uh, indicated that they'd like to stay beyond the terms of this emergency uh, program. And that, that I think, is, is what uh, the government of Canada is going to have to think about, uh, whether they're interested in turning on emergency uh, plan that was meant to get people out of harm's way with the intention of them going back into a new immigration pathway. My guess is that they'll extend the, the program further so people don't have to consider going back into harm's way and then buy some time to figure out what they're going to do. How do you balance all this out, Phil? Because obviously you can completely understand a family uh, leaving a war-torn area and and just the, the trauma involved in all of that. And then finally setting up roots and, as you're saying, perhaps working uh, the kids in school and such. And you can certainly see why, you know, out of this tragic situation, a better opportunity has presented itself. Where does that leave Ukraine? Because even President Zelensky said at the yep. end of this, he hopes everybody comes back because they obviously need to rebuild. So how do you balance this? Well, this is why I think the decision will ultimately, my guess, if I were wagering, would be to say that the program will be extended to buy time, in part because this is a foreign policy issue as well. Ukraine does not want to lose 210,000 people who are, you know, contributors who are of working age, who are needed to rebuild the country when this conflict is resolved. And for Canada to suddenly create an immigration pathway at this point wouldn't send the right signal to the Ukrainian partners. So I don't see that happening anytime soon. And you're absolutely right to make that a focus, that there's a another country, right? The country that lost these folks who would like to see them back. Can you, do you think there will be incentives for them to return once that's possible? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the scale of rebuilding in Ukraine is going to be so immense. Mm. Um, you know, you wonder where they're going to start. 
spending their resources. I mean, typically countries don't provide incentives for people to return. Um, and so I don't think Ukraine will likely do that. I think they'll depend on people making the decision that it's safe enough to go back and that there are opportunities that rival those that they found in Canada. Uh, and, uh, you know, enough will come back to help the rebuilding effort. Uh, what about the countries that people have fled to? Uh, should they be doing more to get them back? I've read somewhere that I think it's Sweden or, or uh, Switzerland and Norway, I believe it was, that are offering uh, incentives for once this is over to go back. Is, is that where this lies? Countries have uh, provided support for people to go back. So not only people on programs like these who are fleeing wars, but people who may have come as, as temporary workers and, and overstayed their contracts. So historically, we know that countries have provided some support for people to make the move back. Uh, as you say, the European Union offered a similar program for emergency relocation. And I think historically, they've treated it as temporary. This is temporary asylum for folks who need to get out of the way of, of a disaster. They did the same in the former Yugoslavia for people from Bosnia. Mm. Most of those people went back. Not all, but many. And I think the Europeans, that's their intention. Canada is, doesn't have a history of doing this. We've resettled refugees from war zones in the past. Of course, Indo-Chinese uh, refugees after the Vietnam War in the late 70s, early 80s, and more recently, people from Syria fleeing that conflict. But that's a different thing altogether. That's refugee resettlement. We haven't really done this emergency relocation uh, in the past, but it does raise the question, well, what do you do if people want to stay? And that's the question that the Canadian government will have to grapple with in the months ahead. Who rebuilds uh, Ukraine? Ukrainians are going to build, rebuild Ukraine probably with a lot of help from the European Union and maybe from the United States, depending on who wins the next presidential election and the uh, congressional elections as well. Phil Triadophilopoulos with us, Associate Chair, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, Scarborough, talking about Ukrainians who have obviously fled uh, persecution and what is happening in their homeland. Now many deciding to stay here in Canada. Phil, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Pleasure, Scott. Take care. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Always well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reading this headline today about, and you know, when we've been talking about it for a while, that uh, the beer stores are uh, going to slowly be deregulated and things are going to open up and allow for more options and such. And, you know, I remember maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, uh, this was a huge story. Now I think it's just taken so long and, and, you know, now you can buy cannabis on the corner. You know, I, I wonder how much of an impact this is going to even have or people even care about this anymore. It's a good question and we're going to be talking about it on the show. Uh, we got one of the local microbreweries coming on or craft breweries coming on that uh, I think will be impacted by this. I don't, I don't, I think the interesting thing for me, and I don't really know the answer and I'm hoping that he is going to, to tell me something about this. I don't think this is going to have a huge impact on the Molsons or the Labats or the Coors no. or any of those giant ones. You can get them anytime, anywhere. And it's, to me, it's a much more interesting thing about how is this going to affect all the ones below the top, like 10 brands? Yeah. Does this make any difference to them? And, and I mean, presumably, uh, I like, I don't know what all, all along the way, I've never been exactly sure of what the underlying driving purpose of this is. Is it for convenience for consumers exclusively, or is this to bolster the industry? For those who, again, are below the, the top, top brands, then it's just easier to sell their product like so many other products get sold all over the place. I don't know the answer to that. Well, anytime you add competition, you add outlets, uh, obviously that's going to be, uh, you, you know, good for industry. I mean, even the Grape Growers Association were uh, given the, the head nod to this. 
Um, uh, you know, again, I, I'm not sure it's rocket science. It's really going to change anything. And again, just like if they had done it 30 years ago, I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference. Uh, I think what you might see is different types of stores, uh, whether, you know, you might see a store that's ga- that caters totally to craft beer. You might see yeah. a store that caters to just this or just that. And so, you know, I, I, I think that it, it just the whole system has seen has seemed archaic for such a long time. And anybody that travels and goes in any other part of the world, it just seems silly now to well, be running it this one, way. One of the other questions that I think we're going to need an answer to is, um, do you need a special license to do this or can you just sell it? And the reason that that, I think, becomes an interesting situation. I think it'd be the same as anything. You, you'd have to, you know, you have to go through the training. You have to be able to sell it. Same thing as you sell tobacco. Well, and, and that's the reason I'm asking this is not just about tobacco, but I mean, we hear all the time from people who are purveyors of cannabis that, well, it's no different than, than alcohol. So are we, once we get alcohol being sold in gas stations and corner stores, are we going to have a huge push on that all those cannabis stores that opened up are now going to have more competition because every SO and Petro Canada is now going to have cannabis? Uh, you know, it'll be interesting if it goes that far. I, you know, I, I think that debate on cannabis will take over where <laughs> the liquor debate has been for the last 30 years. And, but you bring up a valid point. Once you're introducing a cannabis industry, uh, into the mix, it makes it look, it makes it look like the alcohol industry is quite archaic. Yeah. You know what? Again, I, I don't, um, I have, I have mixed feelings on this one. I, I, I like the idea that the local industry, again, the craft brewers, the smaller ones potentially get an opportunity to have more exposure so that, you know, jobs in that industry and everything. Mm. My concern, and it's always been my concern, and I know some people will say, oh, you're just being naive or prudish or whatever. Uh, My concern is if we, that the easier we make it to get the easier it is for some people, not everyone, I don't, I'm not suggesting everybody by any stretch, but the easier for some people to abuse it or for kids to get their hands on it or whatever else that that's going to have to be, if you do this, I would suggest that the, the enforcement is going to have to be really strong from the province at first to do, you know, send kids in and do checks and do sting operations. Like it is with tobacco. Exactly. No, but I don't, do they still do that? I know they did, but do they still do it? If you don't, if you don't, if you get caught selling underage, you lose your license, you lose the ability. I know that. And that's a huge generator. But do they still do the test? Do they still send kids in as sting operations? That's what I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And I, and if they did, I'm sure they wouldn't tell you about that. What I could see the government doing if you're going to stay in this is just make one big superstore where you can get everything like why do we have to you know it just seems you know odd that we're at a big box store uh and i got to go one end of the of the complex to get this and another end of the complex to do that i mean if you're going to do it just you know sell everything in the liquor store and have one outlet it just it just makes sense we need up in the metal up in the meadowlands we need a big store called liquor and ammo <laughs> one stop why would you want one up, why would you want up one up there you got one in buffalo man there, <laughs> well you know i i joke about it but there are places that hey. have names like that in the states yeah go to a cabela sports store man there's like uh do they have section. liquor though they don't no, have they liquor. liquor, but but they got enough guns for everybody. That's for sure. All right, let's move on. Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. Have a good one, Scott. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Scott. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML.com.